Chapter Three of the De Bercy Affair by Gordon Holmes. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Three, a change of address. On the morning after the inquest of Rose de Bercy, the most miserable young man in London, in his own estimation, was Mr. Rupert Glendinning Osborne. Though utterly downcast and disconsolate, he was in excellent health, and might have eaten well of the good things on his breakfast-table, had he not thoughtlessly opened a newspaper while stirring his coffee. Under the circumstances he might have laughed at the atrocious photograph which depicted Mr. Rupert Osborne arriving at the coroner's court. The camera had foreshortened an arm, deprived him of his right leg below the knee, discredited his tailor, and given him the hang-dog aspect of a convicted pickpocket, for he had been snapped at the moment of descent from his automobile, when a strong wind was blowing, and he had been annoyed by the presence of a gaping crowd. The camera had lied, of course. In reality, he was a good-looking man of thirty, not tall or muscular, but of well-knit figure, elegant though by no means effeminate. For a millionaire, and a young one, he was by way of being a phenomenon. He cared little for society, drove his own horses, but was hardly ever seen in the park, rode boldly to hounds, yet refused to patronize a racing stable. He seldom visited a theatre, though he wrote well-informed articles on the modern French stage for the New Review. He preferred a pleasant dinner with a couple of friends to a banquet with hundreds of acquaintances. In a word, he conducted himself as a staid citizen, whether in New York or London or Paris. Never had a breath of scandal or notoriety attached itself to his name, until he was dragged into lurid prominence by the stupefying event of that fatal Tuesday evening. Those who knew him best had expressed sheer incredulity when they first heard of his contemplated marriage with the French actress. But a man's friends, as a rule, are the worst judges of his probable choice of a partner for life, and Rupert Osborne was drawn to Rose de Bercy because she possessed in superabundance those lively qualities and volatile charms in which he was himself deficient. There could be no manner of doubt, however, that some part of his quivering nervous system had been seared by statements made about her during the inquest. It was not soothing for a distraught lover to learn that Mademoiselle de Bercy's reminiscences of her youth were singularly inaccurate. She could not well have been born in a patrician chateau on the Loire, and yet be the daughter of a Jersey potato-grower. Her father, Jean Armaud, was stated to be still living on a small farm near St. Helier, whereas her own version of the family history was that Monsieur le Comte de Bercy did not survive the crash of the family fortunes in the Panama swindle. Other discrepancies were not lacking between official fact and romantic narrative. They gave Osborne the first glimpse of the abyss into which he had almost plunged. A loyal-hearted fellow, he shrank from the hateful consciousness that the hapless girl's tragic end had rescued him in all likelihood from another tragedy, bitter and long drawn out. But because he had been so foolish as to fall in love with a beautiful adventuress, there was no reason why he should be blind and deaf when tardy common sense began to assert itself. To a man who habitually shrank from the public eye, it was bad enough to be dragged into the fierce light that beats on the witness-box in an inquiry such as this, but it was far worse to feel in his inmost heart that he was now looked upon with suspicion by millions of people in England and America. 
he could not shirk the meaning of the recorded evidence. The newspapers, it is true, had carefully avoided the ugly word alibi. But ninety percent of the readers could not fail to see that Rupert Osborne had escaped arrest solely by reason of the solid phalanx of testimony as to his movements on the Tuesday evening, before and after the hour of the murder. The remaining ten percent reviled the police and protested, with more or less forceful adjectives, that there was one law for the rich and another for the poor. At the inquest itself, Osborne was too sorrow-laden and stunned to realize the significance of certain questions, which now seemed to leap at him viciously from out the printed page. "'How were you dressed when you visited Mr. Bercy that afternoon?' the coroner had asked him. "'I wore a dark grey morning suit and black silk hat,' he had answered. "'You did not change your clothing before going to the Ritz Hotel?' "'No, I drove straight there from Feldisham Mansions.' "'Did you dress for dinner?' "'No. My friends and I discussed certain new regulations as to the proposed international polo tournament, and it was nearly eight o'clock before we concluded the business of the meeting, so we arranged to dine in the grill-room and go to a vaudeville entertainment afterwards.' That statement had puzzled the coroner. He referred to his notes. "'To the vaudeville?' he queried. "'I thought you went to the Empire Theatre?' and Osborne explained that Americans spoke of vaudeville in the same sense as Englishmen used the word music-hall or variety. "'You were with friends during the whole time, between 6.30 p.m. and midnight?' "'Practically. I left them for a few minutes before dinner, but only to go to the writing-room, where I wrote two short letters.' "'At what hour, as nearly as you can recollect?' "'About ten minutes to eight. I glanced at the clock when the letters were posted, as I wished to be sure of catching the American mail. Were both letters addressed to correspondents in America? No, one only. The other was to a man about a dog. A slight titter relieved the grey monotony of the court at this explanation, but the coroner frowned it down, and Rupert added that he was buying a retriever in readiness for the shooting season. But the coroner's questions suddenly assumed a sinister import, when William Campbell, driver of taxicab number XL4001, stated that on the Tuesday evening, at 7.20, he had taken a gentleman dressed in a dark grey suit and a tall hat, from the corner of Berkeley Street, opposite the Ritz Hotel, to the end of the street in Knightsbridge, in which Feldisham Mansions were situated, had waited there for him for about fifteen minutes, and had brought him back to Berkeley Street. I thought I might know him again, sir, and, as I said yesterday, the man continued, glancing at Rupert, but he was stopped peremptorily. Never mind what you said yesterday, broke in the coroner. You will have ample opportunity of telling the jury what happened subsequently. At present I want you to answer my questions only. An ominous hush in the court betrayed the public appreciation of the issues that might lurk behind this deferred evidence. Rupert remembered looking at the driver with a certain vague astonishment, and feeling that countless eyes were piercing him without cause. The hall-porter, too, Simmons by name, introduced a further element of mystery by saying that at least two gentlemen had gone up the stairs after Mr. Osborne's departure in his automobile, and that one of them bore some resemblance to the young millionaire. "'Are you sure it was not Mr. Osborne?' said the coroner. "'Yes, sir.' Leastwise I'm nearly positive. Why do you say that? 
"'Because Mr. Osborne, like all American gentlemen, uses the lift, sir.' "'Can any stranger enter the mansions without telling you their business?' "'Not as a rule, sir. But it does so happen that between seven and eight o'clock I have a lot of things to attend to, and I often have to run round the corner to get a taxi for ladies and gentlemen going out to dinner or the theatre. So there was a doubt, and Rupert Osborne had not realized its deadly application to himself, until he read question and answer in cold type while he toyed with his breakfast on the day after the inquest, which, by request of Mr. Winter, had been adjourned for a fortnight. It was well for such shreds of stoicism as remained in his tortured brain that the housemaid was still unable to give evidence, and that no mention was made of the stone axe-head found in Rose de Bercy's drawing-room. The only official witnesses called were the constable first summoned by the hall-porter, and the doctor who made the autopsy. The latter, who was positive that Mademoiselle de Bercy had not been dead many minutes when he was brought to her flat at ten minutes to eight, ascribed the cause of death to injuries inflicted with a sharp instrument, and the coroner, who knew the trend of the inquiry, would not sate public curiosity by putting or permitting the jury to put any additional questions until the adjourned inquest. Neither Clark nor Fourneau was present in court. To all seeming, Chief Inspector Winter was in charge of the proceedings on behalf of the police. Rupert ultimately abandoned the effort to eat shoved his chair away from the table, and determined to re-peruse with some show of calmness and criticism the practically verbatim report of the coroner's inquiry. Then he saw clearly two things. Rose de Bercy had willfully misled him as to her past life, and he was now regarded by the public as her probable betrayer and certain murderer. There was no blinking the facts. He had almost committed the imprudence of marrying a woman unworthy of an honourable man's love and, as if such folly called for condign punishment, he must rest under the gravest suspicion until her slayer was discovered and brought to justice. Rupert Osborne's lot had hitherto been cast in pleasant places, but now he was face to face with a crisis, and it remained to be seen if the force that had kept three generations of ancestors in the forefront of the strenuous commercial warfare of Wall Street had weakened or wholly vanished in the person of their dilettante descendant. At any rate, he did not flinch from the drab reality of fact. He read on, striving to be candid as to meanings and impartial in weighing them. At the end of the evidence were two paragraphs setting forth the newspaper's own resources. The first of these ran, Our correspondent at St. Helier has ascertained that the father and sister of the deceased will leave the island by today's mail-steamer for the double purpose of identifying their relative and attending the funeral. There can be no question that their first sad task will be the nature of a formality. They both admit that Rose de Bercy was none other than Mirabelle Armaud. Mademoiselle Marguerite Armaud, indeed, bears a striking resemblance to her wayward sister, while Monsieur Armaud, though crippled with toil and rheumatism, shows the same facial characteristics that are so marked in his two daughters. The family never revealed to their neighbours in the village any knowledge of Mirabelle's whereabouts. After her disappearance eight years ago, her name was seldom, if ever, mentioned to any of their friends, and their obvious wishes in the matter soon came to be respected by would-be sympathisers. 
It is certain, however, that Marguerite, on one occasion, dared her father's anger and went to Paris to plead with her sister and endeavour to bring her home. She failed, as might be expected, since Rose de Bercy was then attaining the summit of her ambition by playing a small part in a play at the Gymnase, though at that period no one in Paris was able to foresee the remarkable success she was destined to achieve on the stage. Each word cut like a knife. The printed statements were cruel, but the inferences were far worse. Rupert felt sick at heart, nevertheless he compelled himself to gather the sense of the next item. It was a favourite pose of Mademoiselle de Bercy, using the name by which the dead actress was best known, to describe herself as an anarchist. It is certain that she attended several anarchist meetings in Paris, probably for amusement or for professional study of an interesting type and in this connection it is a somewhat singular coincidence that Detective Inspector Clark, who was mentioned on Wednesday as being in charge of the police investigations into the murder, should have arrested two notorious anarchists on the Thames embankment yesterday, shortly before the Tsar passed that way, en route to the Guildhall. The two men, who refused to give any information as to their identity, were said to be none other than Émile Genoc and Antoine Descartes, both well-known French revolutionaries. They were brought before the extradition court, and ordered to be deported, the specific charge against them being the carrying of firearms without a license. It was stated that on each man was found an unloaded revolver. So far as Rupert could judge, the newspaper was merely pandering to the craze for sensationalism in bracketing Rose de Bercy with a couple of unwashed scoundrels from Montmartre. On one occasion, indeed, she had mentioned to him her visits to an anarchist club, but their object was patent when she exhibited a collection of photographs and laudatory press notices of herself, in the stage part of a Russian lady of high rank who masqueraded as a terrorist in order to save her lover from assassination. "'It would have been only fair,' he growled savagely, if the fellow who was raking up her past so assiduously had placed on record her appearance on the stage as Marie Dukarovna. And who is this detective who made the arrests? Clark was not the name of the man I met yesterday. Then he groaned. His glance had just caught a detailed description of himself, his tastes, his family history, and his wealth. It was reasonably accurate, and not unkindly in tone, but it grated terribly at the moment, and in sheer desperation of spirit he crushed the newspaper in his clenched hands. At that instant his man entered. Even the quiet-voiced and impenetrable-faced Jenkins spoke in an awed tone when he announced, "'Chief Inspector Winter, of Scotland Yard, wishes to see you, sir.' "'Very well. Show him in. And don't be scared, Jenkins. He will not arrest you.' Rupert must have been stung beyond endurance before he would fling such a taunt at his faithful servitor. Jenkins, at a loss for a disclaimer, glanced reproachfully at the table. "'You have hardly eaten a morsel, sir,' he said. "'Shall I bring some fresh coffee and an egg?' Then Rupert laughed grimly. "'Wait till I have seen Mr. Winter,' he said. "'Perhaps he may join me. If he refuses Jenkins, be prepared for the worst.' but the chief inspector did not refuse. He admitted that coffee-drinking and smoking were his pet vices, and his breezy cheerfulness at once established him on good terms with his host. 
I want you to understand, Mr. Osborne, that my presence here this morning is entirely in your interests, he said when they were seated, and Rupert was tackling a belated meal. The more fully we clear up any doubtful points as to your proceedings on Tuesday, the more easy it will be for the police to drop you practically out of the inquiry, except as an unimportant witness. Rupert's heart warmed to this genial-mannered official. "'It is very kind of you to put things in that light when every newspaper in the country is prepared to announce my arrest at any moment,' he replied. Winter was astonished. His face showed it, his big blue eyes positively bulged with surprise. "'Arrest!' he cried. "'Why should I arrest you, sir?' "'Well, after the chauffeur's evidence—' "'That is exactly what brings me here.' Personally, I have no doubt whatsoever that you did not leave the Ritz Hotel between half-past six and nine o'clock on the evening of the murder. Two of your friends on the committee saw you writing those letters, and the clerk at the inquiry desk remembers supplying you with stamps. Just as a matter of form, you might give me the names of your correspondents. Rupert supplied the desired information, which Winter duly scribbled in a notebook but it did not escape the American's usually quick perception that his visitor had already verified the statement made before the coroner. That being so, some other motive lay behind this visit. What was it? Winter, at the moment, seemed to be fascinated by the leaf colour and aroma of the cigar which Jenkins had brought with the coffee. He puffed, smelled, pinched, and scrutinised, was completely absorbed, in fact. Don't you like it? asked Osborne, smiling. The suggestion was almost staggering to the chief inspector. "'Why, of course I do!' he cried. "'This is a prize cigar. You young gentlemen who are lucky enough to command practically unlimited money can generally obtain anything you want. But I am bound to say, Mr. Osborne, that you could not buy a thousand cigars like this in London today, no matter what price you paid.' "'I imagine you are right,' said Rupert. The estate on which that tobacco was grown is one of the smallest in Cuba, but it is on the old rich belt. My manager is a scientist. He knows to half an ounce per acre how much sulphate of potash to add each year. "'Sulphate of potash?' questioned Winter, ever ready to assimilate fresh lore on the subject of the weed. "'Yes, that is the secret of the flavour, plus the requisite conditions of soil and climate, of course.' The tobacco plant is a great consumer of mineral constituents. A rusty nail, a pinch of salt, and a lump of lime, placed respectively near the roots of three plants in the same row, will produce three absolutely different varieties of tobacco, but all three will be inferior to the plants removed from such influences. "'Dear me,' said Winter, "'how very interesting!' But to his own mind he was saying, "'Why in the world did Fourneau refuse to meet this nice young fellow?' Really, this affair grows more complex every hour. Osborne momentarily forgot his troubles in the company of this affable official. It was comforting, too, that his hospitality should be accepted. Somehow he felt certain that Winter would have declined if any particle of suspicion had been attached to the giver, and therein his knowledge of men did not deceive him. With a lighter heart, therefore, than he would have thought possible a few minutes earlier, he too lit a cigar. Winter saw that Rupert was waiting for him to resume the conversation momentarily broken. He began with a straightforward question. "'Now, Mr. Osborne,' he said, "'will you kindly tell me if it is true that you were about to marry Mademoiselle de Bercy?' 
It is quite true. How long have you known her? Since she came to London last fall. I suppose you made no inquiries as to her past life? No, none. I never gave a thought to such a thing. I suppose you see now that it would have been wiser had you done something of the kind. Wisdom and love seldom go hand in hand. The chief inspector nodded agreement. His profession had failed utterly to oust sentiment from his nature. At any rate, he said, her life during the past nine months has been an open book to you? We soon became friends. Since early in the spring I think I could tell you of every engagement Mademoiselle de Bercy fulfilled, and name almost every person she met, barring such trivialities as shopping fixtures and the rest. Ah, then you would know if she had an enemy. I think so. I have never heard of one. She had hosts of friends, all sympathetic. What was the precise object of your visit on Tuesday? I took her a book on Sicily. We, we had practically decided on Tauromina for our honeymoon. As I would be occupied until a late hour, she arranged to dine with Lady Knox Floristan and go to the opera to hear Pagliacci. It was played after Philemon et Baucis, so the dinner was fixed for half-past eight. Would anyone except yourself and Lady Knox Floriston be aware of that arrangement? I think not. Why did she telephone to Lady Knox Floriston at seven-thirty and plead illness as an excuse for not coming to the dinner? Rupert looked thoroughly astounded. That is the first I have heard of it, he cried. Could she have had any powerful reason for changing her plans? I cannot say. Not to my knowledge, most certainly. Did she expect any visitor after your departure? No. Two of her servants were out for the evening, and the housemaid would help her to dress. Winter looked at the American with a gleam of curiosity when the housemaid was mentioned. Did this girl, the housemaid, open the door when you left? he asked. No, I just rushed away. She admitted me, but I did not see her afterwards. Then she may have fancied that you took your departure much later? Possibly, though hardly likely, since her room adjoins the entrance, and, as it happened, I banged the door accidentally in closing it. Winter was glad that a man whom he firmly believed to be innocent of any share in the crime had made an admission that might have told against him under hostile examination. Suppose, just suppose, he said, that the housemaid, being hysterical with fright, gave evidence that you were in Feldisham Mansions at half-past seven, how would you explain it? Your own words, hysterical with fright, might serve as her excuse. At half-past seven I was arguing against the ever-increasing height of polo ponies, with the rest of the committee against me. Does the girl say any such thing? Girls are queer sometimes, commented Winter airily. But let that pass. I understand, Mr. Osborne, that you have given instructions to the undertaker. Rupert flinched a little. What choice had I in the matter? he demanded. I thought that Mademoiselle de Bercy was an orphan, that all her relatives were dead. Ah, yes. Even now, I fancy, you mean to attend the funeral to-morrow? Of course. Do you imagine I would desert my promised wife at such an hour, no matter what was revealed? No, Mr. Osborne, I did not think it for one instant, and that brings me to the main object of my visit. Please be advised by me. Don't go to the funeral. Better still, leave London for a few days. Lose yourself till the day before the adjourned inquest. 
But why, in heaven's name? Because appearances are against you. The public mind, I had better be quite candid, the man in the street is a marvellous detective in his own opinion. Being an idler, he will turn up in his thousands at Feldisham Mansions and Kensal Green Cemetery to-morrow afternoon, and if you are present, there may be a regrettable scene. Moreover, you will meet a warped old peasant named Jean Armaud, and a narrow-souled village girl and his daughter Marguerite. Take my advice. Pack a kit-bag, jump into a cab, and bury yourself in some seaside town. Let me know where you are, as I may want to communicate with you, and, uh, when you send your address, don't forget to sign your letter in the same way as you sign the hotel register. Rupert rose and looked out of the window. He could not endure that another man should see the agony in his face. "'Are you in earnest?' he said, when he felt that his voice might be trusted. "'Dead in earnest, Mr. Osborne,' came the quiet answer. "'You even advise me to adopt an alias?' "'Call it a nom de voyage,' said Winter. "'I shall be horribly lonely. May I not take my valet?' "'Take no one. I suppose you can leave some person in charge of your affairs?' "'I have a secretary, but she and my servants will think my conduct very strange.' I shall call here to-morrow and tell your secretary you have left London for a few days at my request. What is her name? Prout. Miss Hilda Prout. She comes here at eleven a.m. and again at three p.m. I see. Then I may regard that matter as settled? Again there was silence for a time. Oddly enough, Rupert was conscious of a distinct feeling of relief. Very well, he said. I shall obey you to the letter. Thank you. I am sure you are acting for the best. Winter, whose eyes had noted every detail of the room while Rupert's back was turned, rose as if his mission were accomplished. "'Won't you have another cigar?' said Rupert. "'Well, yes. It is a sin to smoke these cigars so early in the day. Let me send you a hundred. Oh, no, I am very much obliged, but—' Please allow me to do this. Don't you see? If I tell Jenkins in your presence to pack and forward them, it will stifle a good deal of the gossip which must be going on even in my own household. Well, from that point of view, Mr. Osborne, ah, I cannot express my gratitude, but when all this wretched business is ended, we must meet under happier conditions. He touched a bell, and Jenkins appeared. "'Send a box of cigars to Chief Inspector Winter at Scotland Yard by special messenger,' said Rupert, with as careless an air as he could assume. Jenkins gurgled something that sounded like, "'Yes, sir,' and went out hastily. Rupert spread his hands with a gesture of utmost weariness. "'You are right about the man in the street,' he sighed. "'Even my own valet feared that you had come to arrest me.' "'Ha-ha!' <laughs> laughed Winter. But when Jenkins, discreetly cheerful, murmured, "'Good day, sir,' and the outer door was closed behind him, Winter's strong face wore its prize-fighter aspect. "'Clark would have arrested him,' he said to himself. "'But that man did not kill Mirabelle Armaud. Then who did kill her? I don't know. Yet I believe that Fourneau guesses. Who did it? Damn! It beats me. And the greatest puzzle of all is to read the riddle of Fourneau.' End of chapter 3